Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of Divinity uh, Connecting the Dots in partnership with Jane Unchained News Network, a show that reveals interconnections across concepts vital to public and planetary health. We promote a whole foods, plant-based living and intersectional vegan consciousness for a healthier, happier planet. We have two very powerful women today with us. Uh, please welcome uh, Kathleen Dameron and Julie Wayne. So let's uh, get right into to it. Um, welcome, Kathleen and Julie. I'm, I'm going to pose my first question to Kathleen. Um, Kathleen, you are a co-founder um, you know, of so many different initiatives, including online MBA programs, and you're a founder consultant at Katie Council. Uh, you're based in France. Um, how did you start working in the space of diversity, equity, inclusion, multicultural, multiracial consultancy? Well, I'll just say that my calling came very early in life. Um, so when I was eight years old, I was one of the many black children who were a child of the desegregation. So one day my middle-class loving African-American parents sent my brother off to school. And on the way there were adult, normal Christian white people throwing stones at us children because we were black, because of the color of our skins. And, and I remember one day my third grade teacher said, little black children don't learn like white children. And I remember I stood up from the height of my eight years old and I said, that is not true. And I'm gonna tell my daddy, who of course was my highest authority. And I also was at the top of my class throughout elementary school and middle school. So I learned from that, the spirit which moved me to speak, to stand up, drive, determination, and a little bit of intelligence to achieve and to be at the top. And that was the calling of my life is this, why, why do, why would white people do that to children? How can they have their eyes so closed, their minds so closed, their hearts so closed? So I have been called to racial literacy, to racial justice. When I was 16, I went to university. When I was 18, I came to live in France. I've worked as a multicultural trainer in French multinational organizations. And I've worked as a multicultural, multiracial leadership trainer um, in French, European, American. I've worked a little bit in Africa and I even worked a little bit in India. So from that calling, I have throughout my life so far been involved and concerned by that. Mimi, you're muted. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And thank you so much for calling out that I was on mute, um, trying to manage a few things backstage. Um, but Julie, my next question to you, um, is how did you, uh, you know, just as Kathleen shared with us about her experience as, as a child, uh, you know, of, um, you know, potentially racism and, and understanding that there are some disparities that we experience in the world today. Um, how did you growing up in the U.S. Uh, experience your childhood? When, when did awareness of, uh, you know, certain things dawn upon you? Tell us about, uh, about that. 
Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, Nidhi, uh, for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here with you and Kathleen. Um, it's really, when I heard your what you said, Kathleen, it just struck my, it struck me in the heart because what I lived was something, of course, totally different from you, but it, I lived it as a child. Um, the first time I really was aware of what white privilege is all about, and it might sound presumptuous, but it really was when I was maybe about five years old. And I didn't have the words for it at that time. I didn't have, I didn't know how to express what I experienced, and it's only retrospectively that I've been able to understand what I was actually living, which was the acknowledgement that my whiteness put me in a more advantaged position, and did that a profound sense of injustice. Um, and I'm not sure the story very much, so I'm sort of giving it to you for the first time. Most people have never heard this story, most of my friends have. Um, so I was born into a middle-class Jewish family in the United States and raised in Detroit in a middle-class Jewish neighborhood. And as far as I can remember, we always had help, who we called the maid. Now it goes without saying that all maids were always African-American. At that time, we called them colored. And I must have been about five years old when Yvonne moved into, our into her bedroom in our basement. She stayed with us during the week, and she uh, went back home on the weekends. And she started working for us. I adored Yvonne. She was my everything. She was perfection. And she loved me. She was very, very protective of me. I could do no wrong for her. Um, and I don't have a lot of memories of that part of my childhood, but what I do remember is one moment in my childhood when um, I, uh, she took me home with her. We took the bus, and she took me home with her. And we stayed there for the day, and she took me from house to house and introduced me to all of her friends and her neighbors, and we had lunch together. And everybody was really, really friendly. It was quite eventful, actually. And it wasn't until a couple of days later that I began to feel that something wasn't right about that visit. There was something that happened. I couldn't really put my child's mind around it. Something was not right. I didn't understand. And I remember thinking um, that Yvonne's friends and her family were just as nice and just as friendly as my friends and family. And that the children in Yvonne's neighborhood were just like the children I played with. And I remember also thinking that there was no difference between Elon's people and my people, but that there had to be something, because why else wouldn't we be living together? And then when I asked the question to Yvonne, she laughed and she said, Julie, sweetie, we colors work for you whites and not the opposite. And I was shocked. I was angered. I mean, I understood it was true because she told me and she would never lie to me. I just horrible. It was just totally unfair. And I knew there was no difference between us. I didn't want there to be a difference between us. But Yvonne was telling me that society said there was a difference and that colored people would work for me when I got older just because they were colored and I was white. And that was my introduction to the white privilege. And it was brutal. Well, yeah, that's that's a very powerful story, Julie. Um, your audio and your video was very choppy, so I did offer um, uh, to post the story in the form of a comment, uh, you know, uh, later, because uh, probably some of our viewers may not have been able to catch it. But you know, it's it's uh, when when you actually hear someone as uh, tell you as a child um, uh, that uh, Julie, sweetie, 
this is how the this is the way of the world and that's a very powerful and a brutal introduction um to to the unfortunate reality of systemic racism in in which we live uh at this point um kathleen help us uh you know establish some definitions because as i know that our topic is all about you know what's racial literacy got to do with effective leadership so we're going to talk about the racial literacy and and effective leadership but what is racial literacy how do you define that well as you can imagine there are lots of definitions of racial literacy and at this moment in the united states it's a huge issue around what is racial literacy so let's just go back and say that first of all racial literacy is the first step towards racial justice racial healing we're talking about three things an analytical understanding of racism as a structural as an organizational as an institutional issue system we're talking about our emotional intelligence that allows us to be able to resolve conflicts on an interpersonal level and also within organizations and many people include within inside racial literacy the idea of a commitment to action so effective racial literacy is we have knowledge analytical knowledge of a system of racism so it's not about whether you like or don't like black people uh it's about a system and a practice that has been put into place from housing to education to schooling to implicit bias it's talking about your emotional intelligence or we're going to talk about your heart so your heart is open to the humanity of people who don't look like you and we're talking about your gut and in emotional intelligence that excuse me and in racial literacy your your gut that's the center where you decide what is right and wrong for you your values and so this is all a a framework that allows us to build up the capacity for greater racial literacy within individuals and within organizations so that we can create a world that is different than the world that we have um thank you for that and and that's a very powerful model i'm just going to pull it up again on our screen for our viewers to see it says our three minds and and kathleen you shared that analytical emotional the gut really using our uh you know vagus nerve and and the gut brain uh heart axis um those are some of the things and i know that you know in this conversation you're going to talk uh you know more about this but before we go there um julie my question to you is um as a vegan environmentalist um you know somebody who's not living in her home country at this point in time you're also based in France you know both of our panelists today have a french connection um uh but but your journey to being um a vegan leader um how did that happen like what was your journey like towards your um racial literacy if i may call that well I think that um that's a, kind of a a long story but I think that um you know, it's um I think that it's putting myself out of my comfort zone basically I think that that is how I've grown and I think that's how as an effective leader 
and growing as a leader, uh, we, we, we must proceed. Uh, we have to get ourselves out of our comfort zone because um, our comfort zone is that bubble that we've all created to keep ourselves, or shall I say, our egos safe. And like any safe space, our comfort zone is really important uh, because we've grown, we've generally chosen the people that we're interacting with and we understand the signals and the meanings of all of those signals. We know how to respond to the stimuli and we also have a sense of control over that little micro environment, that bubble. But by growing as a leader, or just by growing as a person, I believe, but also growing as a leader, I think that we have to sometimes relinquish control. We have to re relinquish the sense of control that's so important to us in the world. And we have to challenge ourselves by learning different signals and their meanings that we don't yet know, but that we want to learn, uh, whether we're living in a foreign country, for example, or but if we're just living in the world and we want to be more inclusive and we want to be more sensitive to other people's experiences and more open to dialogue in a very, very complex world. You know, there's all these little pieces in the world, and if we just keep ourselves in one little piece, we're robbing ourselves of such just all of these other moments of, of beauty and of learning and of growing as people and becoming much, much more complete human beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's such an amazing way to put it, you know, um, Julie. Thank you for that. You you've spoken about this bubble, you know, and and uh, you mentioned that it's that safe space uh, where people sort of hide and, and they live with just a selected group of people, just socio-cultural, psychological signaling ecosystem, you know, that they're comfortable with. And, and they're very afraid, uh, you mentioned, to relinquish control. And, and when, when they don't do that, when they're not able to do it, um, they're not able to avail of all the beautiful moments, um, you know, that they may be able to enjoy with people who don't exactly look like them or talk like them. Um, so, so moving on, Kathleen, I, my question, next question is to you. Um, we, we speak about, you know, obviously racial literacy, um, and you've helped uh, explain the definition for that. Uh, Julie's brought in this whole idea of how, how much beauty we're missing, because beauty is missed on both sides. You know, if, if one person is not open, if the other person is not open, we miss that uh, beauty on both sides. There is another term I've heard you speak about um, in our previous interactions, and that's racial healing. So help us understand what's the difference between these two words, racial literacy and racial healing. So um, I'm going to connect in just a moment to what Julie just said, because it's really where you're going to find the need for racial healing. Um, as individuals, we like to think of ourselves as these ego-centered, neocortex-ruled, separated uh, disconnected individuals with a rational mind that decides all. Oh, that is not true. It is far from true. Neocortex does not rule. Rational mind does not decide. We are led by the implicit. We are led by what we have learned. We are led by 500 years of white hierarchy the white hierarchy, what we call white supremacy, this white racism. Uh, 
internalized in black and brown bodies and internalized, embedded in all of our social systems and institutions, in our biases and how we perceive. And yes, white bodies with their closed eyes, their closed minds and their clean hearts, they look out and they don't see the beauty, the contributions. And so that blockage is called trauma. And we know a lot about healing trauma these days. And healing trauma is about how can you go back and unfreeze your bodies? How through ah, breathing, how through movement, whether it be stretching or yoga, motion, martial arts, how is it that we can hum, sing, relax our bodies and connect our bodies back to other people, back to the environment around us? How can we connect to a vision of oneness? Because we do, we are connected to the planet. This white hierarchy over all people, but also white hierarchy over the planet. So no respect for the planet. This is a misconception that is dangerous. And this is a trauma through breathing, movement, humming and singing, vision and resources that you stop, you slow down. And that gives you a window, an opportunity to actually see the world, to feel the humanity, to feel that you belong to the planet. So a healing-centered approach to release the trauma in white bodies so we can actually walk the path of creating. And when, Julie, when you were talking about this discomfort zone, so the healing racial justice allows people to go through, to hold the discomfort, to hold it so that they can release it and that they can find themselves able to create something else. If you just have knowledge and you just showed, if you could show that again, the, the, uh, the head, the heart, the gut, they all have to be uh, through the literacy. And then the next step, they need to be healed so that you can put the effective racial literacy into place. And this is fundamental for coming out of that bubble for creating something more inclusive, for dissolving the discomfort. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for that, Kathleen. And, uh, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the kinesthetic kinesthetic healing, you know, how uh, some people um, and a lot of us as humans, we tend to hold trauma in our bodies and, and uh, trauma goes two ways, right? It's, uh, it's also the remnants, the residue of maybe trauma that we were born into uh, that was inflicted upon us or the trauma that we um, either knowingly or unconsciously uh, inflicted upon another. And, and it sort of stays, and, and those are some of the lies and ties that end up you know, binding us in, in a strange way. Kathleen. Oh, I just wanted to say, yes, we have our individual traumas, but we have intergenerational traumas. And more and more, the yes. trauma that your parents and your grandparents went through, it is within you. And it's also true we have cultural traumas. When we talk about these 500 years, I mean, just stop for a moment. For 500 years, white males have said 
that they are the top of humanity. They are the top of creation. And all good things come through them. And if you just think for a moment how traumatic that is for other bodies, but also how much they have to close down. And it also enables them to exploit absolutely everybody and everything that is not them. Yeah, yeah. That is a trauma. That is a deep trauma. Yes. And, and you know, uh, these, these are, this is a profound connection. I think that this is something that's very, very important for those of us in the animal rights movement, in uh, the civil rights movement and social justice, climate justice, you know, women's empowerment movement. Everyone really needs to understand this, that there is a powerarchy at play, um, unfortunately, that has been all pervasive. It's, it's been rampant uh, through the centuries and it has created a sense of otherness. You know, and, and I know, Kathleen, in your work, you also speak about otherness. But I'm, I'm going to field my next question to Julie, um, because, you know, she she's um, uh, Julie, through your journey to becoming an effective vegan leader, um, you uh, understood, you know, your privilege. You also understood the power of prejudice uh, as, uh, you know, your friend Yvonne shared with you uh, those those amazing insights. And you've spoken about this relinquishing of control, right? And and Kathleen's spoken about that once that control is relinquished, there is in so many ways you can heal yourself, you can you know um, enable healing for others and so on. Um, but how does one relinquish control, especially if it comes with privilege? Because you're gaining something from it. You know, what's in it for um, uh, you know a privileged person to relinquish control? Unmute. Um, <laughs> well, before I get to that answer, because it's very important, I just, what, what Kathleen was just talking about, I thought really touched me. And there was a book that I've read, I read a long time ago, and I just reread. It's called An Unnatural Order. I think the name of the author is Jim Mason. I, I hope I got that right. But it really talks about this idea of dominionism. And it talks about the sort of the white European male, the, the patriarchy uh, that has spread across the world and how um, the, the, our sense of hierarchy, but our hierarchy not just amongst human beings, but also our cut with non-human animals, um, misogyny, and especially how um, we are connected or disconnected with nature and all natural processes have occurred. And it's absolutely brilliant and it's so much along the lines of what we were talking about, Kathleen. So please, you know, anyone who's listening, if you haven't read this book, it's very enlightening. Uh, but it, to talk about the question of how do you relinquish control when it comes with privilege that you might be born with, it's a really great question. And I think the first step in relinquishing control is to recognize that privilege. And that can be really, really difficult because when we're actively working, especially for those people who are actively working in social justice movements and putting our efforts toward the systemic change of society so that, among other things, this type of privilege no longer exists and it's something of the past. Um, if we're not aware of that privilege, we can't relinquish control because unexamined privilege is unconsciously integrated into how we are in society. 
it's not just how we are perceived or treated by the rest of society, but how we think and act upon our experiences. So once we've accepted and examined how our privilege can affect not just our relationship with others, but theirs with us, it becomes a lot easier to step out of our bubble because we have less fear of unintentionally making a hurtful mistake because mistakes will happen. But if they do, we have a lot more confidence to admit it and to apologize for it and to ask for help in order to learn from it because that's ultimately what we want to do, right? We want to learn from our successes, but also our mistakes and our failures. That's what makes us a better human being. Thank you for that, Julie. Actually, uh, as you were talking, it reminded me of this fantastic book uh, by Dr. Melanie Joy, um, you know, The Vegan Matrix. And, and you mentioned uh, the issue of unexamined privilege. And I just want to quickly quote from her. She says, unexamined privilege causes us to be defensive against anything that would help us become aware of the fact that it exists. And the antidote to carnism is awareness except that carnist um, or carnistic privilege exists specifically to block that awareness. Wise words there uh, by Dr. Melanie Joy. So thank you so much for mentioning that. Um, the Vegan Matrix, in addition to the book that you mentioned, uh, which uh, you know shares about dominionism and, and this dominionistic ideology that perpetuates this whole otherness, you know, that I'm, I'm a certain color, therefore, everybody else is the other. I'm human, so therefore, anything that's non-human, even though it's sentient, is the other. And therefore, I'm not going to respect uh, its sentience. Um, you know, now, both of these, um, bo both of you, uh, amazing, powerful women have traveled the world, and you have had an opportunity to work with so many different organizations. Um, Kathleen, uh, you know, uh, like me, you know, you worked with so many different multinational uh, organizations, um, companies wanting to internationalize themselves. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience in you know, from multicultural to multiracial when it comes to helping these organizations uh, internationalize themselves. Okay. Um, when we talk about the large multinational organizations, in fact, they're not really multinational. If you take the top 100 people in those organizations, those top 100 people are the same race, the same color, the same nationality, and generally the same social upbringing. So what you find is that most multinational corporations, I can even say very few and recently have worked on it, the top 100 people are all the same, there is no diversity. And that means that they have the assumption that there's no talent or intelligent outside of people who look like me. So as long as you stay in your country, that might work. But as you start working across national borders, it doesn't work. And if you try to include the various racial populations in your own country, it doesn't work. So you have the impact of these assumptions, which is you exclude people except a very narrow set of looking people and acting people. They look the same, they think the same. So you have group thought and you block innovation. 
And when you want to ask white males to change, they have nothing in their experience about seeing other people, other cultures, other contributions. They need to learn to see it. Um, Julie, you were talking about codes. They need to learn to decode because the other populations, the um, uh, have learned how to decode. They've learned how to code switch. They've learned how to adapt. And so what you can see between multiracial and multinational is this whole population of high level managers, high level leaders who really do not know how to see, how to value and how to adapt to anything that is different from themselves. Yeah, and then that's an important, uh, you know, awareness, and that's it's very um, important for us to understand that leadership is is somehow, uh, you know, uh, leadership opportunities, leadership positions, uh, influence coming from those positions, um, you know, uh, persons that dictate strategy policy as it filters down to the other uh, you know, um, uh, employees in the organization. Uh, if it's just coming from one uh, set of rules, uh, which is not even uh, what the empl employees uh, might have actually had any role to create, then it can start to feel very unfair very quickly. Um, I've had the opportunity to you know, work with some uh, truly multinational organizations. And, and of course, I spent time in consumer marketing. And, and there was an interesting concept that, was, uh, that I was introduced to at a very early stage in my career. It was called consumer license. And, and I've lived in seven different parts of the world. And uh, you know, as an Indian, I wouldn't know living in Russia how to innovate for Russians and create ad advertising and communication for them. So this concept came in really handy. And I think that for organizations in the vegan world, plant-based uh, movement, uh, since we're talking about uh, internationalizing, uh, Kathleen, uh, this, this could be a good example. Um, no one was even allowed to participate in meetings unless they had first understood their communication target audience. Um, and, and that was achieved by doing research, doing focus groups, you know, understanding what your target audience wanted, such that international teams from different types of nationalities you know, all across the board could actually understand who they were going to talk to and, and create innovation for. Um, otherwise, I would have had no clue. You know, I was not raised with any mayonnaise. It's not part of uh, South Asian cuisine at all, right? Okay, so, so Julie, Talking about where I was raised, which is India, and and you have an amazing, amazing history with uh, my corner of the world. Um, how, what was the difference, uh, you know, that you experienced between being a white-bodied American woman in Europe and a white-bodied American woman in India? Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, um, I think. The thing is that I um, was born in the United States, I was educated in the United States, and I, um, when I was finished my college, I went off uh, and I traveled for about three years and worked in different places for about three years. And then uh, in 1985, I settled in France. So I was in France, um, and I didn't, I didn't know the language at first, uh, but I did blend in. Right? It was a very, very big difference. And then about 
10 years later, about 25 years ago, I started to travel frequently and actually live at certain moments of time in South India, rural South India. Now, what we have to remember is rural South India, I stick out like a sore thumb. I don't blend in at all. Um, you know, especially in this the ultra south area, uh, people are small, they're small boned, uh, they have dark eyes and dark skin, uh, sometimes very, very dark skin, and they have almost black hair. And here I was, I was five feet eight. Um, I had dyed hair at the time, but it was probably like a reddish chestnut color. Uh, I have blue eyes, white skin, very white skin, blue eyes and glasses. And so I just did not. Uh, and so it's really interesting because I think that being an outsider, I actually thrive on it personally. I love being an outsider. I love being an outsider because it really um, gives me an opportunity to, to have a different perspective to observe, to observe and also to come down to what is really the common human experience. Um, what are we all here trying to do? And the thing is, is that when you're an outsider, there's some certain lessons that we have to learn. The first one that I learned is not to pretend that I'm anything other than what I am, meaning an outsider. And to be that someone who has everything to learn and is certainly open to being taught. The second thing is just not to take myself so seriously, uh, to allow myself to make silly mistakes, faux pas, you know, they're never very important, right? I'm not hurting people by doing it, but I'm making a little bit of a, not a fool of myself, but still, you know, I'm the laughing stock. And I'm able to laugh at myself. And that, I think, is such an important thing that I've learned to do. And I think that it really changes us when we learn to lighten up about ourselves and um, we allow ourselves a lot more levity, not just about ourselves, but also in, 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 uh, in with other people, you know. Yeah, those are some great pointers. So uh, what I understood, number one, be comfortable being an outsider. Number two, do not forget that you will always be an outsider. Um, number three, obviously we've touched upon that is humility and being openness uh, you know, to learning. And, and number four is it's pretty interesting and a very surprising tool that you mentioned, it's levity or humor. Um, and, and, and that's pretty interesting. You know, it reminds me of a book uh, that I'm reading at this point. I'll uh, pull it up on our screen. It, it's called Humor Seriously and, and how humor, when done responsibly, consciously, it actually can help leaders move forward. And, and I'm told it's highly correlated with resilience. Um, so, so Kathleen, my next question is to you. When we take into account all of this, you know, these things in the toolkit that you know, vegan leaders in, in grassroots organizations and vegan organizations, plant-based organizations can choose from or, or use all of them in their arsenal, how is then racial literacy related to leadership effectiveness? You know, uh, if you can delve a little deeper into that, that would really help our viewers. So, you want to know how is it related? So I'd come back to just what I was mentioning earlier. Um, who do you want to have in your organization? Who is your market? Do you want to have BIPOC 
market? Do you want to have BIPOC members? Do you want to be present in BIPOC communities? Do you want to have people who don't look like you of different races within your organization? If you say yes to any of those questions, then that means you need racial literacy. I loved it when you were talking um, about, yes, in your career, in the multinational world, as someone who's in communication and marketing, you had to learn the other people. That's racial literacy. You had to learn them. You had to be able to understand them. So if you want to work across cultures, if you want to work outside of your just the people who look like you, you need to be able to observe yourself. You need to be able to observe others. You need to be able to say, what's the gap between how we do things and how they do things? So I analyze, evaluate. I do not think that my way is the only way <laughs> or the only right way. Very American. And it also means that you know how to decode so that you can go that way. And then you can explain to people how to come towards you. It means that you know how to code switch in certain situations and it's always situational. It means that you have curiosity. And when it comes to humor, it's not humor you make a joke. It's very much what she said. It's that humor about yourself that when you are awkward, when you don't know that you can accept it, it's not their fault. It's, oh, this happened to me. Ah, it's part of being here. What have I learned? And those are the people, that racial literacy, those are the people who get others to follow them. Because if you are not followed, you're not a leader. <laughs> so how are you going to grow your racial literacy enough that you invite, incite, inspire people who are not of your race to want to follow you and to want to follow you to an objective, to a place that they feel is worth the journey. So that's some of the link between racial literacy and leadership, which is people follow me. And if you are a vegan plant-based organization and you want others to follow you, well, how much racial literacy do you need that they're gonna follow you from their habits into unknown uncharted territory because you say it's a good idea. That's how much racial literacy you need. Yeah, and and exactly, you know, because racial literacy, like how much of it do I need? And, and that's a very interesting question. Um, Kathleen, a quick follow-up question to you is, um, I've heard people say racial literacy is, you know, or, or racism, for example, is binary, right? Like either you are or you're not. And then if I'm racially literate now, yesterday I might've been racist, but today because I'm racially literate and I attended this workshop, today I'm not racist, racist at all. Like how does that work? And, and what is the model that you, uh, it's, you know, think about? You know, I, I want to laugh because um, last night I was in a, in a conference talking about racism and you hear white people say, oh, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Do you know 500 years, 500 years of institutional, cultural, white is at the top of all of the other races. And so it's not binary. It's a continuum. You have some white people whose behavior is that I think that all non-white people are inferior to me. 
And then you can go along the continuum and you say, well, they're not inferior, but da da da. And then you can get to the point to say, well, I don't feel comfortable around them. I don't understand them. And then you can keep going until you get to the point where you say, I believe that all human beings are equal and deserve justice and that we need to give reparation in our society to create now social justice, equity, and dignity. So it's a long way from, I think that all others are, all non-whites are inferior to me, moving through what we've talked about, you know, my cognizant analytical mind, my heart mind, the moving through the guts and having the values to stand up, to stand up to when I'm in a party and I hear a microaggression, I have the guts to say something about it, to say it's not fair. I have the guts and the heart to say I relinquish my privilege so that everybody participates in it. This is the path of racial literacy, which also includes racial literacy. So when we talk about someone saying, I'm not racist, I'm like, it's not binary. Where are you at on the continuum? And more importantly, where do you want to go as an individual and for the organizations that are plant-based? Where do you want you to be? Where do you want your organization to be? And that gives you the opportunity to build a roadmap. Very well said and, and very well defined. Thank you so much for that, Kathleen. Almost sounds like it is, first of all, an inside job. Um, and, and an inside job, not just organizationally, but an inside, inside job uh, when it comes to leaders in grassroots organizations, plant-based organizations, vegan organizations who want to create a diversity, equity, inclusion, inclusion strategy or a policy or even draft a statement around that. Um, and, and when we say the inside job, it's about culture. It's really about identifying, understanding what your organizational culture is and, and looking at that continuum that you mentioned, I'll pull it up on the screen again, um, that it's, first of all, understanding it's not binary, it's a continuum, and finding, evaluating um, where you might be on the continuum, and where is the next step for you, where do you want to go, you know, because it's it's really not about, it's about progress, and it's not about perfection, you know, as, as uh, the saying goes. Um, Julie, you helped co-found an organization uh, with two other persons, uh, you know, who are of South Asian origin. And, um, you know, in your travels and in your experiences, even before you had co-founded Jiva Bhavna in India, what were some of the struggles, any, any travel experiences, any other experiences that you can share with us that enabled you to sort of commit to the, the inside job of racial healing and, and racial literacy? I bet it, it wasn't comfortable at first, you know, so we'd love to know uh, more about your experiences. Well, it wasn't comfortable and it wasn't linear. Let's put it that way. You know, these things are not like, you know, you're here and then you're there and you're there and you're there, at least not for me. It's sort of uh, facing things, seeing things, uh, lacking uh, responses, wanting to have responses, step, taking a step back and everything like that. Um, one of the things I think for me that was the most important was, I think there's two things. One is that, um, uh, is, is accepting, is accepting the limits of my cross-cultural literacy. Because it's really, really easy, especially when you've immersed yourself in another culture and you like that culture, you love that culture, you're fascinated by that culture. 
um, it's really, really easy to think that you're more literate than you actually are. Uh, so I've made that mistake. I've made that mistake on a number of occasions, and I've even made a mistake when friends of that culture have said to me, oh no, don't do that, that's not a good idea, and I did it anyway. For some reason, I guess I wanted to prove, I had something to prove that I was actually more literate than they thought I was, but actually what they ended up proving was just the opposite. So <laughs> one of the things I guess we can take out of that is that if we're lucky enough to know somebody in this you know, culture uh, or of this race um, that you know, we are attracted to or interested in or that we, we're, we're, we're spending our time um, working with, you know, we want to know more of, is that if you have, if you're lucky enough to know somebody in that person, take that, in, in that culture, take that person's advice um, on matters that have to do with what they, their race is and their culture, because no one will ever know more about it or better than um, than these people itself, you know, than, than the people that you're you're friendly with and things like that. So I think that um, also what's interesting with cross cultural literacy and accepting uh, the limits of our cross cultural literacy is that actually it can make us more literate once we've accepted that we have our limits, right? Um, there, there, I have a lot of examples, and I don't want to really go into them because we don't have so much time. I could go on forever, of course, and I'm sure Kathleen could, and I'd be fascinated. But um, I've been in situations, for example, where um, Europeans in, in a certain, in Tamil Nadu, for example, where I happen to spend a lot of time, uh, where they were absolutely not culturally literate, as a matter of fact, they almost took pride in how little they knew about the culture, but they were there, they had a boutique hotel, and they were there because they wanted to enjoy the fruits of this merchant class that was in the heart of Tamil Nadu and had these palaces, and so they, you know, as architects, they made this wonderful boutique hotel. So um, they were in smack dab in the middle of a culture that they had absolutely no interest in, um, other than the fact that they were able to have people come in who were interested, clients. And so something happened in that hotel, and uh, all of a sudden the, 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 their staff members were not working at all, they were not coming in, or they were leaving late, there was a very bad ambiance. They asked me if I could actually intervene because I spoke a bit of Tamil at this point, and I was very interested. I mean, rural Tamil Nadu is basically my expertise. It has become my expertise. So um, I went and I talked to these people, and they told me that a, a worker uh, who had worked on the renovation of this hotel uh, and who was not hired afterwards to work in the hotel he basically came the week before and he did black magic and he said to all of these people, you are going to get hurt, you're going to die, uh, you're going to lose your job. So, you know, and so the ambiance was horrible. They didn't want to work, they didn't know what to do, they wanted to work and everything like that. And my, you know, I talked to them and I, the thing is, is what I realized because, you know, I've worked in that area for such a long time is that this is real for them. It, it's real, you know, what, what, you know, this idea that they were going to struggle and they might die was very real to them. But I also realized, because I was literate enough to understand that, but not literate enough to help to do anything about it. And so that allowed me to take the next step, which was to go out to a village where I happened to know a pujari, a priest who was extremely 
venerated because he did he read the future and things like that and he just had this great following and to actually bring one of the workers to him so that the worker could tell him his story and then the next day i brought the pujari to the hotel itself and the pujari did a big you know a big puja big um ritual in order to basically drive away the evil eye and then bless the people. And what was really interesting about that is that from one moment to another, the ambiance just changed. They became bright and cheerful and and it was a really, really beautiful, you know, transition. It was very, very sudden, but it, it really worked basically because I was able to understand that that's what was needed, you know, but, and what was really great about it, and very touching, very poignant about it for me, was that um, the next day, the, all of the staff members were coming to me and asking me to come to their homes to meet their families because they recognized that I knew enough about their culture and was interested about the culture to to actually make that next step. And that, to me, I think, is also enhancing one's literacy. It's admitting our barriers and our limits. And, where we can go and where we can go. Yeah, Julie, that's a brilliant story. That's a brilliant example um, of, you know, how you I used your present level of, you know, cultural literacy and, and used that to forge a solution that wasn't just from your social background, your ethnic background. It was, it's really not about cut, copying, pasting Western templates and, and saying, painting everything with a brushstroke and say, no, this worked for us, therefore that's also gonna work for you. But you actually, um, you know, uh, allowed for what was theirs and, and for that, uh, the, the solution that was culturally appropriate for that situation. Um, uh, in activism, you know, so a lot of times people bring their own stories right? They, they bring their own stories and their wounds and, and their ancestry. And, and they believe that, um, you know, because I've gone through something similar, I'm able to empathize with others. Uh, and, and, and a lot of times that empathy, you know, is, is genuinely something that powers their work. Um, Kathleen, my next question to you is, we know from data, 79% of the animal rights movement, uh, you know, vegan movement, plant-based movement in the US, they're women, they're mostly white, some of them with mixed ancestry as well. How can they tap into the full power of their divine feminine and, and you know, bridge this gap of systemic racism and, and bring uh, within their fold or invite within their fold uh, sisters, uh, you know, of, uh, from BIPOC communities? And, and, and also a slightly different question, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, just looking at some comments. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Stacey Anderson and, you know, she, she says, um, I'm both native and white. Um, my hair is red and my eyes are blue. And, and she says, how shall I speak about any of this? Because, you know, she says, I'm, I'm a mutt of the encroachment of Europeans on this continent. So, and, and she's an animal rights activist. You know, she's a very uh, powerful vegan advocate. How can women like Stacey and, and others bring their divine feminine and also their understanding of their ancestry, the trauma and the wound, um, and empower their work? Kathleen. That is a very complex question. I'm gonna go back and put in something a little um, 
first step. So we've talked about racial literacy. We've talked about racial healing. Um, those are first steps. No matter where you are, you need these women need to know what's the racial, what racial literacy do they have for non-white women, for women of color? To know what we've done, what we've brought, what we've contributed to society. Are their hearts open to our experience? So I would say let's look at their racial literacy, let's look at their racial healing. And for a lot of European-based white women, a lot of that racial healing is to go back and connect and reclaim the fact that Europeans killed white goddesses. If you were accused of being a witch, you died. They would tie you up, throw you in the water, and if you didn't come up, you were not a witch, but you were dead. And if you came up, they'd kill you. So just to be accused. So the divine feminine in this European white world has been crushed and they've tried to eliminate it. So it's really good to go back and recognize, to study, to get your racial literacy up on where it comes from women of color. And then you need to do your racial healing for how it was destroyed in your culture and for how they have squashed and recognized it in non-white cultures because there's, there's a game there of, uh, oh yes, the Africans have it. Yes, the Native Americans have it, but then you squash it at the same time. So that's a longer answer. And then there's another step, which is how are you gonna go towards these other cultures with internship, inviting them to come and be interns in your organization, but not one. Because if you invite one, you do not have critical mass to have safety. So how am I going to find a group of them to invite in to our organization? And then the next step is stewardship. How am I going to have them counsel, coach me? Um, and I, you put this up. Please go back to that. You know, this man is about to become, well, probably become mayor of New York. And this is a black man who's a former policeman and who has written a book about this plant-based healing, this healthy. So if you want to go towards the black community, have, have, you, have you got him to advise you, to counsel you, to coach you? That's the stewardship. Have you followed him and what he's trying to do? Have you relinquished? I love this word, Julie. Have you relinquished and said, I will follow him for part of the road? And what did he want to do? And how does he say it? And, and what are his recipes? And learn from him and follow him before you try, before you try leadership and leadership on a goal and objective, a mission that is shared between a BIPOC community, between women of color and between women who are white. So I'm going to do that again. First, you need to get your racial literacy. Then you need to do your racial healing. And then you're going to start on that. Yeah, very much. It's not binary. So you're coming along a path. And then as an organization, and as the organization, the organization brings in interns, a group of people. So because if you bring in one, they're going to get squashed. So bring in the interns. Do the stewardship. Get someone like Get his book, learn from it, bring in people to advise, to counsel, to coach you. It's what Julie said. She went to the village. She had someone who knew be her, be responsible, be a steward. They stewarded her, coached, advised. And then 
do followership. I follow the women of color. And then and only then do I try and do something that's leadership with them. Okay, that's a roadmap. Yeah, that, that's a very powerful roadmap and something that cannot be accomplished overnight. Uh, these things take time. They need patience. They need us, you know, because everything is a level up. You need to have necessarily accomplished the level before to, to be able to, uh, to be able to tap into your power for, you know, so racial healing before racial literacy and racial literacy before you're able to do um, the, the, uh, the internship, the stewardship, the followership, uh, and, and so on that and Kathleen mentioned. That's such a fantastic model. We're learning so, so, so much uh, from you, I, Kathleen. You want to say something? I want to add something. Julie talked about acceptance. Your racial literacy, your racial healing, you accept it will never be complete except that I have learned that I know and I'm on a path. So your word of acceptance, I'd like to put into that model. I'm on a path and I accept that I'm going up the ladder and sometimes I'll go back down the ladder. Acceptance. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So um, absolutely. You know, when we, when, when we, have anger, when, when we have indignance, when we feel a certain way about what, you know, the wrongs uh, that we might be carrying because of that intergenerational trauma. Uh, one of the key words is acceptance and being at peace with our own selves, if it's possible, to the extent that it might be possible, because it might vary for, you know, from individual to individual. Um, we are running out of time. We have literally two minutes left, but I want to give the mic to Julie because Julie is walking and talking, racial healing, racial literacy, and she's been on this path for so long. Julie, tell us about Jeeva Bhavna's Urvarasa initiative, where you're putting all of these models that you have in your head to work with farmers in India. You're on mute, Julie. So if you would unmute yourself, please. There we go. So, um, yeah, so first of all, uh, I just had this incredible, incredible opportunity to have founded and direct a, uh, an NGO called Jiva Bhavana with two partners, Madhavi Kote and Sanjeev Naik. And uh, we're a vegan environmental NGO, so we're really studying uh, animal agriculture, the absolute horrors of animal agriculture, and everything that's related to animal agriculture environmentally, but also the skyrocketing chronic diseases, and hunger, and uh, uh, just the, the, the economic uh, ruin of so many farmers because of the vested private interest that, that uh, trumps public good. So um, just yesterday, we launched our Farmers Empowerment Program, and it's called Urvarasa. And it empowers farmers and consumers by promoting and guaranteeing fair trade, sustainably grown, cruelty-free, healthy, plant-based foods. Now, what we're doing is we're creating direct farmer-consumer channels, and we're working with the farmers in order to provide them with a decent livelihood getting them out of breeding and exploiting animals, growing food forests as perennial food sources, and we're creating this consumer channel so that the farmers and the consumers are able to work together to create a much better India for the planet, for themselves, for the animals, for our health. 
That is fantastic. Julie, congratulations to you, to Madhavi, and to Sanjeev. Uh, you know, I follow you guys very closely. You're part of our Divinity Coalition. And, uh, and thank you so much for continuing to show up for that coalition. Um, even though, you know, we've experienced that a lot of people, when they hear this is a BIPOC coalition, it's only meant for BIPOC women leaders, blah, blah, blah. And, and we don't see a lot of other, uh, you know, uh, white Caucasian leaders show up for us. But thank you so much. You've done that and, and for your grace and your participation and congratulations for Overasa. With that, um, dear viewers, uh, I thank Kathleen and, and Julie for sharing your wisdom today with us. I also want to quickly thank our broadcast partners, uh, without whose uh, partnership this wouldn't be possible. Of course, Jane Unchained News Network, the Versa Foundation, Main Street Vegan, Plant-Based Nutrition Movement, Seeds to Inspire Foundation, Plant Pure Communities, uh, and, and all the wonderful pod leaders who made the time, invested the time to watch this broadcast today. Jiva Bhavna, which is Julie's uh, uh, um, vegan environmentalist NGO, and Thrive Plant Life LLC. With that, we will be back next month with yet another amazing uh, episode for you. Uh, this is your host, Navi Jaswal, signing off. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.